This is Revive Chicago. Listen and be changed. For those of you who haven't been here, what I've been doing is a sermon series called Answering the Questions of Jesus. And obviously, a lot of the questions, these are 2,000-year-old questions that he's asking. And what we've done is kind of unpacked from each gospel. So there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we've done our best to kind of go through each one. We had a, a Sunday on Matthew, a Sunday on Mark, a Matthew, a Sunday on Luke. And now we're the second Sunday on John because there was just a lot of really good questions. <laughs> and uh, so if you'd like to catch up, if you'd like to go back, we've got a podcast with that's kind of like our sermon archives. If you'd like to go back and listen to it, uh, go listen to John part one, or you can go listen to the whole series if you'd like. So today we're starting out in the middle of John. And it's interesting because there, Jesus asks a lot of questions in the gospels. So I, I don't know if I've mentioned this recently, but uh, he asks 339 questions. And I didn't cover all of them. <laughs> I had to pick and choose. There are some. Uh, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are kind of written similarly. They have some of the same stories, but written from a different perspective. And so you see some of the questions asked in each of those gospels. And then part of the reason why it's taken me longer to get through the book of John is because John was written totally different. It's got totally different stories. And John wrote it later in his life. Most scholars think that John may have been in his 80s or 90s when he was writing this book. So, and, okay, so that's a little context, but then at the same time, John was also very, very young when he walked with Jesus on the earth. So again, most scholars think that John was likely in his late teens or early 20s when he was one of Jesus' disciples. Like when Jesus first picked him out of the crowd and said, hey, come follow me, John might have been as young as like 18 or 19. And so now we're like, we're reading, we're reading John's version of the gospel and it's been like 60 years since he walked with Jesus. And you can, in my mind, I'm thinking like, at first he was like, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you did such a great job. We'll just let you have your gospels. And then he's getting older and he's thinking, he's feeling the Holy Spirit nudge him to write down his perspective and share his story and see how it would help the church. And by that time, like he's considered like a grandfather in the faith an apostle, like everybody's looking to him. And so he's got some very unique perspectives. He tells some stories that only John tells. And one of them here is in John chapter seven and eight. Um, and so if you'd like to turn with me, the, we'll read the question first. And then I always like to give context because it helps us understand what's going on. So the context is, or, or sorry, the question is in, I lost my place here. John chapter eight, verse 10. And Jesus says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Like, okay, I have no idea what that means, right? Like you just take that one verse and you can mean anything. Like what's he asking? What's going on? So let's lead it, read a little bit more of the story. And it kind of, it starts in, Verse 53 of chapter 7, so it says, Then each one went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. 
They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teach this woman, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, how would this be a trap? So this is where we kind of flesh out some of the context, understanding the question, right? In the book of the law, Moses talks about the Ten Commandments. Most people know the Ten Commandments, right? And right there in the Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not commit adultery, right? It's against the law of Moses. And this is the law that they're all living under. But here's the thing. At this point in time, Jerusalem and Judea is under Roman control. The Romans took away the ability of the Jewish court to sentence somebody to death. So the Jewish law said an adulterous person needed to be put to death. The Roman law said, Jews, you can't put anybody to death unless you get our permission. So now there's kind of this trap for Jesus because they're wanting to know, are you going to go against Moses and make all the Jewish patriots mad? Or are you going to go against Rome and say, yeah, she should be put to death. And you're going to go against Rome. And now we've got a basis for accusing you before Rome. Right? So that's the trap that they've put Jesus in. And this woman here is caught in the middle. She's just bait. She's just bait. And so it goes on and it just, they, it says, this is the basis they had for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. So imagine this moment. Like, it's like a very public moment. Jesus is teaching before a bunch of people. And like, so like, think of this. I'm teaching. I'm standing in front of a group of people. And these people just come barging in and say, teacher, what do you have to say about this in front of everybody? And instead of answering them, I make it even more awkward than it already is. And I just like start drawing on the ground and it just keeps getting more awkward and it says and it says when they kept on questioning him so he like he does it long enough that they just keep badgering him like what are you gonna do and he's just drawing on the ground it seems like such an awkward moment like I like awkward moments but this would not feel good this would be really weird. Like, what is happening? What is going on? And what is Jesus going to do, you know? And it's kind of interesting. Like, what everybody wonders, like, what, what was Jesus writing? Like, what did he, he says he wrote something on the ground. She's like, what was he writing? And some, one scholar's idea, and I think this is really interesting. So the Ten Commandments, it says, were written by the finger of God in stone. So it says he, he took, he was drawing on the ground with his finger. So what if he was writing one of the 10 commandments, but instead of the thou shalt not commit adultery, what if he was saying, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife? Well, now suddenly they all stand accused, right? They're picking one law and using this woman as a pawn when every single one of the men in front of him had probably lusted after a woman or coveted their neighbor's wife. And so Jesus is writing on the ground, like, which one are you making the more important law here? But it, it doesn't explain to us what he wrote, but it was just an idea, right? So he's writing on the ground with his finger. He straightens up and he says to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. 
And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. <laughs> this is just so wonderfully awkward, right? Like he just says, if you're without sin, you cast the first stone. And that's where the scholar got the idea. Like, what if he was writing, you shall not covet? Because they're like, they're going to look and they're going to see what he's writing. And they're like, yeah, I'm not without sin. Realizing in that moment, like I'm standing accusing someone else. And here's the interesting thing. When, so the Old Testament law required that a woman caught in adultery would be stoned to death, but a false witness or a false accus accusation would lead to your own death by the same punishment you were trying to get on that person. So if they're bearing false witness, if they've just gathered a crowd of people to accuse someone so that they can trap Jesus, like, let's just say for all we know, this woman wasn't even caught in adultery. Like, what if they were just literally using her as a pawn? I don't know. I, I do believe that she was caught, like, but how do we know? Are they bearing false witness? Is that why they dropped the stone so quickly? So he stoops down and he's writing on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was standing, or until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her. Now it makes much more sense, doesn't it? Woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? She said, no one. Then Jesus looked at her and said, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is just such a powerful, dramatic moment. And she's suddenly set free and released. And there's all of her, all of her accusers, this moment where she thought she was going to die. And this one man stood on her behalf and protected her, saved her life. And then to top it off, he looks at her. And can you, like, you can just imagine the kindness and love in the eyes of Jesus. And he looks at her and says, neither do I condemn you. Like, what's going through this woman's head? She went from death to life, just like that. And I think a lot of people in this room are dealing with accusers in your own mind. You feel accusations a lot and it weighs heavy on you. And today, I feel like just starting out this sermon, Jesus is asking the question, where are your accusers? And I think it's actually more of like a Wizard of Oz moment. Like if you, you hear all these accusations in your head and all of the sins, all the guilt of your past, all of the things that are going through your mind, constantly weighing you down, keeping you down, trying to keep you in your place. But you pull back the curtain and you say, where are your accusers? And you realize suddenly that they're all made up. They're all just in your head. Nobody's actually standing accusing you. And the one that could accuse you would be the perfect one, Jesus, right? Like literally no one else is accusing you. And the perfect one, the one who could accuse you is looking you in the eyes with love and kindness and saying, neither do I. Neither do I. It's so powerful. It's so freeing. You've been sitting there under accusation all your life, 
feeling guilty, feeling shame, feeling hurt. And suddenly the son of God looks you in the eyes and he's telling you, I'm not here to condemn you. And he's the one maybe some of us thought was so condemning. Like when you think of church, you think of religion, who's the accuser? Who's the one that came and like, I died for you, sinner. (laughs) You know, like that's how people kind of perceive it sometimes. Like the one who's accusing you is Jesus. And yet he's actually, when you go back to this, when you strip away all of religion and all the traditions, you strip and you go to the word itself, what does it say? Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I. And so these accusations that you've built up in your own mind, these things that just weigh on you and lead you to sometimes depression even, and you feel overwhelmed with life. And they're false accusations. No one else has the right. I mean, every single one of us in this room has fallen short. Like what right do I have to condemn you? Who's condemning you? And today we're pulling back, we're starting out this sermon, we're pulling back the curtain and we're saying, there's no one back there. Just this weird little man behind the curtain pulling cranks and levers. You know, there's really no one condemning you. And the one who could, the perfect one, Jesus, the one who actually could condemn you because he's blameless, isn't blaming you. He isn't condemning you. He's saying, go and be free. Go live your life. How awesome is that? What a weight off of our shoulders. And this is just the start of the sermon. (laughs) Maybe I should have saved that one for the end and done it backwards. I don't know. It's such a good story. It's such a powerful story. It's almost like Hollywood drama, you know? Jesus, like, you can just picture it, right? Like, Jesus slowly straightens up, you know? Like, it just sounds like something out of a movie. Neither do I condemn you. All right, next question. We'll go from John chapter 10, verse 36. John chapter 10, verse 36. Jesus said, what about the one whom the father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Do not believe me unless I do what the father does. But if I do it, and even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles themselves that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. And again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. And we, I'm not going to be able to take as much time as I did for the last verse on every one of these questions. But just real short, Jesus here is claiming to be God. And there's one thing like in, in debate sometimes and people look at and there's like, there's, they, they come at Christians and they say, nowhere in the Bible does Jesus say, I am God. You're like, okay, well, why are you looking for those three words specifically? 
Like he refers to himself as the son of God multiple times. He refers to himself as being one with the father multiple times. He refers to himself as the I am once. And that's like very specific. In the Old Testament, God refers to himself as the great I am, right? So Jesus saying he's synonymous with the I am is what? A claim to God, right? And so sometimes when you get into debates or you get into uh, people try to argue and talk about scripture, talk about Christianity, talk about whether or not there's a real God, and they try to make like pigeonholing you like, well, Jesus never claims and says, I am God. Well, he does, but he does in their culture. And then we're trying to pull him out of his culture and make him fit our culture and say, you never, you never said the word, I am God. It's 2,000 years ago. He said it in the way that that culture needed to hear it. And this is how mad they were when he was claiming to be God. It says, again, they tried to seize him. Like they were so mad at his claim that they were trying to seize him and kill him because it was blasphemous in their eyes. Okay, if he wasn't claiming to be God here, why did they get so mad? Why did they get so mad? And suddenly it makes sense. And you're like, Jesus is claiming to be God and he's claiming to be one with the father. And he's claiming to do miracles in the father's name. All of those things point to Jesus being God. Especially in their culture. And then we create our own like 21st century American rule book. And we're like, well, you didn't say the words. I am God. <laughs> like what? It's such a ridiculous hoop to jump through. Right? And it's made up. It's arbitrary. We made that rule. Jesus didn't make that rule. Jesus came into the day that he was living in. And he made the claims that he was God in the day that he was living in. We don't get to make up new rules later and say, well, you never really claimed it. It doesn't even make any sense. And so when we answer this question, we're looking at it and Jesus is saying, you're accusing me of blasphemy because I said I'm God's son. Why? And he says, why is it blasphemy if I'm doing the works that my father sent me to do? And you're seeing everybody, they were seeing the miracles. That's part of why they hated him as he was doing miracles and getting crowds to follow him. Okay, so that helps us understand a little bit just about the deity of Jesus and what his claims were. And Jesus did, in fact, claim to be God. All right, let's move on. We'll jump over to chapter 13. So we're going to answer another one of Jesus' questions. Unfortunately, I'm having to skip some. John chapter 13 and verse 12. Jesus asks this. He says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. So in their day, one of the things that would happen that was customary is everybody wore sandals and it was really dusty. So when they got invited over to a nice home or a nice meal, they would all recline and a servant would typically wash everyone's feet. Now, what Jesus did is he had, they, he, they would have like an outer robe and an inner robe. And he took off his outer robe, which symbolized him taking on that role of a servant. And then he actually washed their feet. And you can imagine this would have been very awkward for the disciples, right? Like, just think about if someone had to watch, like if I had you take off your shoes and socks right now and started washing your feet, like it would feel awkward and weird like no 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 like why are you doing this you know and um 
Jesus set a precedent, a president in their day for how to serve and how true leadership should look like. And most of the time in our day, leadership gets talked about a lot and there's ideas of what leadership looks like in the military. There's ideas of what leadership should look like uh, in politics. And there's the way leadership looks like in some churches. And very infrequently have I seen leadership like this. where people are truly serving and taking on, you would say, a demeaning role. Like Jesus is going out of his way, not just, like, and I'm not saying I've never seen people serve, right? I've seen people serve, but this is interesting because in their culture, like it's not even just taking on the role of the servant. It's, it's making it completely backwards in that power position. Like usually you save the best seat in the house for the most important person. There's the seat of honor. And Jesus is not only refusing the seat of honor, but he's actually taking, he's saying, I'm not at the table, I'm washing your feet. And it just flips the whole thing on its head. And so much of the time in in modern culture, leadership is perceived, like they're the most important ones. Everybody serves them. Everybody does things for them. Everybody looks up to them. Everybody talks well about them. And the the way that Jesus said it should, leaders should be, is servants, leading through serving. That's an important distinction, distinction, isn't it? How, if you want to lead people, if you want to be, you could say, great in the kingdom of God, you have to serve. And that's really ultimately my job as pastor. Like, yeah, I'm up here in the pulpit. I'm the more important person in the room because I get the microphone, right? Like, every, that's the way people perceive it at times. But that's actually not how it should be. My job is actually to serve you, to help you, to encourage you. Now, having this microphone is part of how I do that. But also in my book, it's all, it's all week long. It's through text messages, it's through prayers, it's through phone calls, it's through encouragement, it's through having people over to our home and serving as best I know how. And That's the model that Jesus set forth for us. And so he's sitting there and he washes, or he's not sitting there. He gets up from the table and washes their feet. And then he asks them, do you understand what I have done for you? And this was typical of like a, of a Jewish rabbi, like to ask questions of his disciples. Like, do you understand what I'm talking about here? And probably they didn't fully understand. Probably they didn't. But we've got to ask ourselves, like we read a story like this, do you understand what Jesus is talking about? Do you understand the example that he's setting? Because our tendency is to lead how we think we should lead. And a culture says you need to lead strong. You need to yell at people sometimes. You need to tell them to do 10 push-ups. You know, like we've got this militaristic view of what leadership looks like and what being strong or maybe even masculine looks like in order to lead. But if leading is through servanthood, then it doesn't really matter if you're a guy or a gal. You can lead. Right? The qualification that Jesus made for for leadership was servanthood. He didn't say you have to be a man. He said you have to serve. 
And sometimes in the church, we've got this idea that it has to be a man that leads. It always has to be a man in charge. And I think God has put us, God put Adam and Eve both together over the earth. And we create these gender roles and we create these positions of power. And Jesus is turning everything on its head and saying, leadership isn't power. Leadership is servanthood. So then I have to ask that again. Do you understand? (laughs) You know, like, do I really understand what that means, what that looks like? It's a heavy question. Do you understand what I have done for you? Next question, John chapter 13, verse 38. John chapter 13, verse 38. Jesus answered and said, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Now, this is following an exchange where Peter's telling Jesus, like, I will never deny you. What are you talking about? Right? And Jesus is, ask, Jesus is asking, Peter even says the phrase, so we'll, again, I'm all about context. You guys are going to be like, I'm tired of hearing about context, but I love giving context. So verse 37, Peter asks, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter's like offering, he's like saying, I'm, I'd go, I'd follow you anywhere. I'd lay down my life for you. And Jesus answers and said, says, will you really lay down your life for me? You're going to deny me three times. I'm trying to imagine what's going through Peter's head. Like by tomorrow, like you're saying by tomorrow, before the rooster crows tomorrow, I'm going to deny you. Like, no way. And sometimes like the way we live our lives, we act like we would die for someone else or we would die for Jesus, but then we have a hard time living for him. Like, We have a battle with the remote on whether or not we come to church. We have a battle with the warm, comfy bed. (laughs) Like, I would die for you, Jesus, but I'm not sure I can get out of bed on Sunday. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like we live our life telling ourselves we would die for a cause, but then we don't live for the cause. And Jesus is calling Peter on the carpet. Like, you you think you know me. You think you're going to, like, die on my behalf, but you can't even live on my behalf. You can't even make decisions day to day that show me that you're going to live on my behalf. And it's convicting. And then Jesus even tells him, like, you're going to, in fact, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows tomorrow. I'd be like, no, never. And Peter responds, like, no way. Like, that's not going to happen. And we'll, we're going to move on from this question now, but it's going to come back up towards the end as I'm talking today. John chapter 14, verse 10. John chapter 14, verse 10. Next question. Jesus says, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. This is another key question where Jesus is answering whether or not he's connected to God, whether God is the Father. And the Father is in it. He's saying, I am one with the Father. 
another claim to Godhead, right? Another claim to being one with him. And so he's asking that question again, like, why don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me when you've seen all these miracles take place? And that's a question that we sometimes wrestle with in Christianity. We're like, okay, I've heard of the Trinity. There's this three in one thing and one in three, and they're like all the same, but they're kind of distinct. <laughs> and we get confused sometimes. We're like, okay, do Christians believe in three gods, like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or do they believe in one God? And like, how is this, how does this work? You know, and I'm not going to be, be able to unpack the entire Trinity for you this morning, but think, think of yourself and how you live and exist, body, soul, and spirit, right? Body, soul, and spirit. You, you are made in the image of God, three in one. Just think about it even that way. It's so simple. You were made in God's image and you exist three in one. Because as soon as, like, if your body ceases to exist, all three cease to exist. Like, you're, you're, either, you're all or nothing, right? And even, like, we kind of have this idea, like, when we die and get to heaven, we'll be like these spirit beings floating around playing harps or something on clouds. But, like, actually, we're going to get resurrected bodies, you're going to have a physical body after, after you die. Like you're going to have a physical body even in heaven. It's going to be different than the one you have now. But it's going to be a physical, like think of Jesus. Jesus was the very first one to be resurrected, right? And when he came back, did he have a body? Yeah, he had a body. They could see the scars. He ate food. We talked about that a few weeks back. Like Jesus had a physical body and he's the firstborn among the brethren is what the scripture says. He's the firstborn to be raised from the dead. And we look to him as, as that firstborn and look toward our future resurrection. So sometimes you feel trapped in this body. <laughs> like, oh, I hate this body. It's holding me down. I get, why do I get tired all the time? All like, but the future body, the heavenly body that you're going to have is still going to be physical. You're still going to be able to see it. You're not going to turn into some spirit or something. But at the same time, it's going to be different than what we have now. Like Jesus' body was pretty cool. He like showed up in the middle of a locked room. How do you do that? You know, like after his resurrection, he just, the disciples were locked in a room afraid that they were going to get killed too. And then Jesus just appears in the middle of the room. But then he eats some fish. Like how did you walk through a wall but hold the fish inside your stomach? I don't know. But that's pretty cool to think about. Like I'm going to, my body's going to be like magical sort of but it's still going to be a physical body. Okay, enough on that. Some of you are like, this is interesting, but I don't know what it has to do with anything. <laughs> oh, okay, next question. John chapter 18, verse 34. John chapter 18 and verse 34. Jesus said, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Who's he talking to? He's actually talking. This is the moment he's before Pilate. He's not going to take off in an airplane. That's just the name of a guy. Okay. My dad humor is not landing this morning. <laughs> it's okay. I don't care. 
I'll, Jesus had a way more awkward moments than I had, apparently. So I'll just deal with it. <laughs> but Jesus is standing before Pilate. And this is him, like he's literally facing death. He's being tried as a criminal, right? And Pilate's questioning him. And why, why is this key to our understanding? So at first, Jesus is being accused by the Jews as being worthy of death. But do the Jews, remember, we already discovered this. Do the Jews have the ability to put somebody to death? No, they have to go get permission from Rome to put somebody to death. So they go and they bring this big crowd, they rile people up, and they're trying to convince Pilate that this man, Jesus, is worthy of death. So Pilate's asking him questions to try to figure out if Jesus is worthy of death. And so there's this exchange back and forth, and you've probably seen it in movies or if you've watched uh, the life of Jesus or if you've watched the Passion of the Christ, right? There's this exchange. and. Uh, where are we again? Verse 34. Okay. So we'll jump to verse 33 and see what prompted Jesus' question. Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus to him and said, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? And instead of just answering the question and saying, yep, I'm the king of the Jews. I'm the son of God. Like none of that is going to make sense to a Roman prefect. Right? So Jesus asks him the question, is that your own idea or have others talked to you about me? And I like this question because it applies directly to us today. The ideas that you have about Jesus, are they your own idea or is it just someone else that has talked about Jesus to you? Have you, have you studied the word for yourself? Have you studied history? Have you sought after who was Jesus? Or are you just basing your perception of who Jesus was on what everybody else is telling you? Because what everybody else is telling you could be lies. It could be based on their perspective. It could be based on their understanding. It could be based on what they think they want you to know so they can control you. And so if we went out and did a survey of people, just walked around down these streets and tried to survey people and ask them, who is Jesus? We're going to get a lot of different answers. And our society has different answers about who Jesus was. And most of the time, they try to pigeonhole Jesus to make him be who they want him to be. He becomes a God in their image. Jesus is definitely a Republican, or Jesus is definitely a Democrat, because he would do, he would feed the homeless. You know, like pretty, like pretty soon Jesus is wearing like an American flag and standing up in front of people, right? And we've, we've made him into our political savior. And Jesus would do what we want him to do. Jesus would say what we want him to say. He's going to get our point across. But it actually matters what Jesus, who Jesus actually was. And are we just being told by someone else who they think Jesus is? Or have we done even worse, like made him into our image? And he's just a parrot for us, a talking point for us, doing what we want, saying what we want. And so I love this question because it affects, it affects me. Like he, Jesus didn't just ask Pontius Pilate this question. It's like he's asking this question for all of eternity. Did you come up with that idea? 
Did you get that revelation? Remember we talked weeks ago about Peter coming to Jesus and saying, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, this was not revealed to you by any man. It was revealed to you by God. And I love coming to this point where you got to have a revelation of who Jesus is for yourself. This isn't something that I can do for you. This isn't something I should convince you of or manipulate you to. This is something you've got to get a revelation of who Jesus is, not just what other people say. Not even, I mean, I'm, try, I'm your pastor, but not even what I say. Like you should be studying this book. You should be figuring it out for yourself. You should be pursuing God and saying, all right, God, I want a revelation of who Jesus really is. I just don't, I don't want a bunch of hearsay. I want to know Jesus for myself. And it seems like the real Jesus doesn't always give us the quick pat answer. He actually, like, he answers questions with questions. This is one of the other things I love about him. Like, how did we figure out there's 339 questions? Because he answers other people's questioning of him with a question. Can you imagine? Like, isn't that infuriating when you're listening to, well, I brought up politicians, so I'll just stick with that analogy. You, like, you're listening to politicians, and they get asked a question, and instead of answering it, they ask another question, or they just answer the question that they want to answer. You know, like, they're like, we're talking about this issue with Ukraine and Russia, and you just start talking on your own talking point about feeding the homeless. It's like, what does that have to do with anything? You know, and they, like, people skirt the issues and Jesus isn't skirting the issues but he's he's refining it and it's like is that the question you really want to ask and so he asks another question back and brings clarity to it and so much of the time the way that we are taught to think we think in questions and answers we think we think in in, in multiple choice and true false and Jesus doesn't fit that paradigm Jesus challenges it so we ask Jesus a question and he asks us a question back. You know, like, I'm just imagining that moment. Like, you're praying and you're like, all right, God, are you real? And you just, like, hear back from heaven. He's like, are you real? <laughs> you know, like, uh, <laughs> I guess that could be a hologram or this could be, like, some computer simulation. From the, like, I don't know if I'm real, you know, like. Philosophers talk about this. <laughs> it's like, that's actually a really good question. And we're so busy questioning God, questioning things that we don't actually sit here and wrestle through the questions that Jesus asked millennia ago that deal with our heart and deal with how much we just live life, like we talked about earlier, just simple-minded, doing what other people say, listening to what other people say, listening to hearsay. And it doesn't help us. Pilate replies to Jesus and says, what, am I a Jew? It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But my kingdom is from another place then. Pilate answers and says, you are a king then. And he's engaging Jesus. And you've got to do those things. You've got to 
go back and forth with Jesus a little bit and wrestle this out sometimes. We, go, we settle for the pat answer way too easy. But what did the pastor say? So sometimes you've got to wrestle this out for yourself. You've got to pray through it a little bit. The answer isn't going to just come quick. But that's actually what builds your faith. That's what makes you stand on more solid ground. Don't just settle for the simple way, the simple path, the pat answer. Question. Seek. Scripture says if you seek, you'll find. So do you just have your own ideas? Or did others talk to you about Jesus? All right, next question. Verse 20, or sorry, chapter 20, verse 15. Chapter 20, verse 15. Jesus asked her, woman, why are you crying? I love when Jesus talks this way because it's kind of offensive to our modern ear. I brought this up last week. So you just get this like, woman, make me a sandwich. Like it just sounds really offensive, you know? But he's actually not. It's just more formal. Like, ma'am, why are you crying? Like, that's what he's saying. It's not offensive, I promise. <laughs> but he asked her, he says, woman, why are you crying? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will, I will go get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father, but go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them he had seen, or, and she told them, that he had said these things to her. This is a really interesting exchange, and I'll probably delve into this a little bit more like next Easter or something. But one of the, one of the interesting things about the story of Jesus and about his, his death and his resurrection that gets overlooked a lot is the fact that the first witnesses to his resurrection were women. And in their day, women weren't allowed to witness, be a witness in court. Their testimony wasn't considered valid. And there's a lot of people that point to Christianity and say it's a backwards faith or it's demeaning to women or it undermines women. But one of the things it actually does is elevate women. Because if you're going to try and prove in the public court of opinion a resurrection from the dead, in that time period, are you going to appear to a woman witness or a male witness? You're going to appeal to the male witnesses to prove your point. But God actually undermines their society and elevates women and actually reveals himself to a woman first to be the first witness. That's something to me. So this exchange here, Jesus is saying, woman, why are you crying? And sometimes for you gals in the room, like, why are you upset? Why are you crying? And you could be like sexism or like whatever, like whatever thing that you're facing, whatever battle, whatever man you're mad at. 
You need to come back and realize that scripture, that Jesus himself isn't trying to push you down or keep you in your place. He's actually elevating you to a higher status and a higher position than maybe society wants to let you be at. But if you sit there and just cry about it, you sit there and just stay upset, then nothing changes. You've actually got to turn around, open your eyes and look and see Jesus. Because that's what's going to change your heart and mind. That's what's going to open your life. But it's so easy in our society, like, when you feel oppressed or when you get pushed down, you get, you get made into a victim. And today, both men and women have been turned into victims in different ways, but they've been turned into victims. And there's people that embrace that victim mentality. And it holds them back. It pushes them down. And maybe some of you have had that voice, that victim mentality, holding on to you, dragging you down. But Jesus is here and he's revealing himself to you. And you can't stay there wallowing in your victimhood. You may very well be a victim. There might be things that have happened in your life that you're a victim of somebody else. You're a victim of circumstances. You're a victim to culture. But Jesus came to bring you out of that, not to wallow in that with you. He shows up to where you are and he says, be free, daughter, be free. He calls her by name. He says, Mary. And so it's like she snaps out of it. And what if Jesus came and spoke to you and called you out and encouraged you? He said, Carolina, Alanis, Ellen. What if he called you out and he spoke your name? He says, it's time to not be victim anymore. I'm calling you out. I've got a place for you. You get to, I'm, I'm picking you as the witness to go and tell the other disciples. What? I don't deserve all the things that go through your head. It's time not to be victim anymore. It's time to be free. It's time to be empowered. It's time to stand up empowered by Jesus and who he was. And I promise you, if you step out of that victimhood, It'll change everything. It'll set you free. Many of us have been made to be victims or made to feel to be victims. But Jesus came to say, you're not victims anymore. That's powerful. You're not a victim anymore. But if you're used to being a victim, if you're used to living out of that mindset, kind of hard to change your mind. Jesus came and said, be free. So woman, why are you crying? <laughs> Jesus came to set you free. All right, next question. We're going to engage this little portion a little bit. So this is uh, chapter 21. 
This is after now. This is after Jesus' death and resurrection. This is after they've discovered the empty tomb. Jesus is appearing to them again. And this is that little, that story where the, like the disciples have gone out in a boat. They've gone back to fishing. And Jesus shows up. And they take in this huge haul. They can't, like the nets are breaking. They can barely bring it back to shore. And Peter shows up on the shoreline. And it says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, he replied. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. A third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, this exchange is really interesting for a lot of reasons. But remember earlier when we read about Peter saying, I will follow you. I will lay down my life for you. How many times did Jesus get denied? Three times. What's happening here? Peter doesn't realize it in the moment. And in fact, he's actually hurt by it a little bit. But Jesus is reaffirming him, not once, not twice, but three times so that Peter can get that out of his head. So that Peter can look back at this moment and be reminded that Jesus asked him three times. Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus, this was a, an exchange of forgiveness. Because we don't think about it sometimes, but not only did Judas betray Jesus, Peter betrayed Jesus. Peter just didn't betray him into to death, but Peter betrayed him. He denied even knowing him. Judas set him up for death, but Peter also denied him. This, this would have been the same rift in a friendship. Right? At your moment of greatest trial, your best friend doesn't stand up for you. In fact, denies knowing you. How's that going to make you feel? Right? And so Jesus is reaffirming that love. He's reaffirming that relationship and that connection with Peter. And Peter doesn't even realize it in the moment. He's saying, Lord, you know I love you. In fact, he's almost hurt by it again. Why is he hurt by it? Because all of a sudden, all of that flood of feeling, all of that betrayal, all of that pain from what he knows just took place is coming flooding back in again. And he's having to face what happened to him. Judas was so distraught after his betrayal of Jesus that he went and killed himself. Peter was so distraught that he went back and reaffirmed that love and engaged Jesus again, overcoming that hurt. And I've found that as humans, we tend to respond one of those ways. When there's pain in a relationship, when there's offense in a relationship, when there's betrayal in a relationship, what is our natural tendency? What do we want to do? We want to run away. We want to create distance. We want to keep walls up to that person. Maybe we want to never see that person again. When you've been hurt, when you've been betrayed, you create distance. You create separation. 
That's our natural tendency. That's essentially what Judas did. And that's what Peter did at first. But in order to reaffirm the relationship, to reaffirm that connection, he had to come back and face the facts, talk to Jesus, and deal with the hurt and pain. There's some of us in avoiding and trying to avoid that hurt and pain relationally. We just act like it's not there. We don't want to bring it up. We don't want to talk about it. We bury it. But we start to avoid that person. We feel betrayed by that person, so we put walls up to that person. And we're trying to protect ourselves. And Jesus just goes waiting right in. Can you imagine? A per, like a real, a real betrayal like that on this level. And then you be the bigger person and go up to them and ask them if they love you. That's huge. That's hard to do. But Jesus did it. And on a bigger level, we're all Peter. We're just like that. I've betrayed him. I've denied him. I've not stood up for him when I should have. I've, I've fallen. But I get to go back to him. And he's the one always reaffirming the love. He's the one asking me again, do you love me, Aaron? Do you love me? And despite my failings, despite my betrayal, despite my unfaithfulness, he stays faithful. And he's the one coming in and standing on my behalf. He's the one reconnecting the relationship. He's the one that paved the way and paid the way with his own life so that I could be forgiven. He restored the relationship so that you could know him, so that I could know him and truly love him. And sometimes we want to almost get defensive and be like, Lord, you know I love you. He's kind of digging deeper because we've got walls up. Some of you have walls up to other people. Some of you have walls up to God himself. You're not sure you want to let him in. You're not sure like what will really happen if I let you change my heart. What's going to, what's going to really, if I truly let God in, Am I going to become one of those like weirdo religious people? <laughs> you know, and then, then you got people like me. I am one of those weirdo religious people. Like you, you lift your hands in church and sit, you actually sing along with the songs. Like, you know, like people who love Jesus. So my life has been so changed. If I get accused of being a weirdo religious person, then so be it. I love Jesus. He's changed my life. He's set me free. So even if it hurts sometimes, even when I've faltered, come Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. I want to be connected with you. We'll keep reading this little section because Jesus said, feed my sheep. And then in eight, verse 18, he says, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. 
Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. I love that because what? Three years prior, what did Jesus do as he was walking along the shore? He told Peter, follow me. And Peter's words when he said, I'll lay down my life for you are actually now in this moment restored again and made true. Because Peter does ultimately lay down his life for Jesus. In fact, his, uh, church history says that the Romans crucified him. But he didn't want to be crucified exactly like the Lord because he didn't feel like he was honorable enough. And so he actually was crucified upside down on the cross, on a cross. But he did. Jesus said, follow me. And he did for real this time. So I think that's probably a good place for us to end this morning. Is concentrating on the love of Jesus. Your love for him. Despite your failures. Despite your betrayal. And it's an interesting notion because I, I got this from our pastor. You saw him on the screen just before we switched over. That's our senior pastor, Steve Gray. But one of the challenging things that he talks about from time to time is he kind of pushes back on regular Christianity. A lot of regular Christianity, they would end this service and they would be talking about how God loves you. And he does. But most of you walked into this room knowing God loves you, or at least having heard it multiple times. But one of the things that will change your life the most, that will change your life dramatically, is when you decide, I love God. And you pursue that, you press into that and what that means. Because going all the way back to the Old Testament, it invites God's people and it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Scripture's focus isn't on God's love for you as much as it is your love for him. We tend to flip it. And it's not like theologically wrong. Does God love you? Yes, God loves you. I hope nobody walks in like, pastor said God doesn't love us. <laughs> that is a severe misinterpretation. But what I am saying is how many of you were ultimately, like you're transformed by finding out that God loves you. But what changes everything is when you start to love God and act like you love him with all your heart, with all your soul with all your mind, with all your strength. Jesus, Jesus brings this up with Peter, and he doesn't say, Peter, he doesn't restore the relationship by saying, Peter, I love you. He's restoring the relationship by saying, Peter, do you love me? Because Jesus knows that that's what's going to fix things. That's what's going to change things. That's what's going to make our church different because so many churches, all they do is focus on God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. And people just show up and act like, all right, God loves me no matter what I do. And they don't change anything. They don't do anything different. And I'm here to tell you and remind you, no, you love God. You love God. 
And if you can put that in priority, if you can put that, that first and respond to his love, it will drastically change your life. It will set you free of the hurt, the pain. It'll restore the relationship just like it restored the relationship with Peter. When you make up this, your mind this morning and you decide, I love him with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. And I'm reprioritizing and I'm not just going to sit here and always bask in his love toward me all the time. I'm going to challenge myself a little bit. Because you, like, when you say, I love God, you've got to put action behind that. There's action. When, when you say God loves me, kind of leads to apathetic behavior sometimes. You know? Scripture teaches both. And in American Christianity, we've just focused on one, on one side of it. We've just told people over and over again, God loves you, God loves you. And it just creates this boring, apathetic church where you don't have to do anything. You just show up on Sunday and the pastor does all the work. And you know what? That's not what God designed you for. God designed you to serve through leadership. God designed you to love each other and to love him, to put him first. And when you get that priority in place, it changes your life. It changes your mindset. And it kind of pushes back against culture a little bit, doesn't it? Everybody's heard God loves them. How many times do you hear a preacher say, no, you love God? You're like, I don't, what does that mean? What does that look like? Jesus said, feed my lambs. Loving God, loving Jesus looks like action. It looks like doing something. It's not just an idea. So would you stand with me this morning? I've been closing out. The series most weeks, kind of just asking those questions again. Several of the questions that we wrestled through, talked about this morning. I'm just going to read them over us again, and then we'll pray together. But Jesus straightened up and asked, Woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Where are your accusers this morning? We wrestled through the question where Jesus said, I am, I am God's son. Why do you accuse me of blasphemy? Jesus answered and said, will you really lay down your life for me? He asked them, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? Jesus asked them and said, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? He asked Mary, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? 
And he asked Peter, Do you love me? Do you love me? That's where we're going to end this morning. I'd like you to just pray with me. And we're going to acknowledge that God loves us. We're going to thank him for sending his son, but we're going to tell him that we love him. That we're not going to change our mind. So if you would, repeat this after me and just say, Jesus, thank you for what you did for me. Thank you for coming and saving and rescuing me. Thank you for making my relationship with you whole again. But today, I'm here to tell you that I love you. I'm never going to change my mind. I'm never going to back down. I'm going to love you with all my heart. I'm going to love you with all my soul. I'm going to love you with all my mind and all my strength. In your mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. Now it's time to put your faith into action by applying this word to your life. If you'd like help taking your next steps with Jesus, contact us at revivechicago.church.